Hey, we've got some great boat drivers, don't we? If you've been out on those boats. It's not all of our boat drivers, but some of our boat drivers, and they're, uh, they're good boat drivers, aren't they? You had none of that going on today, did you? No, and none of that happening. Uh, no boats were sinking. No one was sitting on a capsized boat. Uh, nobody was out there with their life vests on, paddling for life. None of the merchandise in those expensive boats were underwater. Uh, no helicopters were called in to get anyone. Uh, and when they do, by the way, it's kind of a it's kind of a scene when the helicopter has to come down and rescue people. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's what you call it—to be rescued. Uh, another word for it is delivered. Another word for it is to be saved. To have a dilemma that is threatening your well-being, and have someone come in and save you. We've been talking about being saved, and we've been talking about it not in terms of drowning, but in something much, much bigger than that. And we've talked mostly here, at least the emphasis has been on you realizing that you need it. And that is um, half the battle right there. That is when God helps you to understand that you need to go from death to life, that you need to be saved. That's the whole point of the first couple of sermons that we've worked through. We reach today verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which simply says, and here's our word, by grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Be saved. Be saved. And we said this is not about our physical drowning up, your lungs being filled with water. This is about a relationship with your Creator. And it's odd to think about, but you need to be saved from your father, the father that made you, the father of all mankind. God is the father of everyone in the sense that he is in charge. He's the creator. He's the owner of everyone. And uh, if you don't deal with the problem of selfishly living your life and incurring a debt that you can't pay, like this kid who incurred a debt he could not pay and had to face his father... He's racking up a debt he could not afford, uh, or the boat driver, right, that needs to be saved from the consequences of his foolish driving. It's not that he would have to be saved if he kept the, uh, the rules of boating. There are rules that will keep you from needing to be saved, right? But uh, the problem is uh, people don't keep those rules, even the best among us. And there was a man in Matthew 19, he's called the rich young ruler, and he asked the question, the real question that's of importance for us this week, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? I'd like to be, uh, I'd like to be saved, and Jesus gives a very curious answer, but look at how he words it. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. It's that simple. If you don't want to be saved from a boating accident, be drowning out on the lake, well, then just keep the rules. Right? Drive properly. Don't hit anything. Do what you're supposed to do. Everything will work out. And God gave us a set of rules for life. I mean, he gave us a set that goes beyond the 10, but the 10 is a good place to start. And if I were to call in the rich young ruler's mom or dad and say, now, wait a minute, let's talk about your uh, son's childhood. I mean, could I not find any situation in which he did not honor his father and mother? Oh, I'm sure there would be plenty. Because the Bible's so clear about everyone on this planet. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We've all transgressed the rules of God. Our maker gave us instructions, and he said, hey, you want life? You want to be in God's favor? You want eternal life? Well, all you got to do is keep the commandments. 
The problem is uh, no one keeps the commandments, not even the rich young ruler. You haven't kept the commandments. He starts going through them, and the guy thinks, well, I've, made, I've kept that, I've kept that, I've kept that. Well, of course you haven't kept that. Jesus is going to get to, in that passage, Matthew 19, the fact that the very first commandment on the commandment list was to have no other gods before God, the real God. And this guy had amassed so much money, and God simply said, listen, I'll prove to you that you have a God that's before God. You can't, you can't even make it on the first commandment. He said, take everything you have, give it away, and follow me. And the man went away sad because he had a lot of wealth, and he didn't want to part with that wealth because he worshipped his money over God. And he wasn't willing to do what God said. If God got very specific and said, hey, I need you to set all that aside and come follow me as an itinerant evangelist, follow around all of Judea and Galilee, just like the fishermen have left their nets behind, you do the same thing. He wasn't willing to do it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're going to have to stand before the Creator one day. In Revelation chapter 20, it's put this way. The great and small, doesn't matter if you're the rich young ruler or you're Peter, the fisherman. doesn't matter if you are a king or a president or someone important in this world or whether no one knows your name, no one will ever write a book about you. Then it doesn't matter. You're all going to stand before the throne. And one day the books are going to be open. Right, The books. So that's two books at least here. That's plural, right? And then another book was opened. So there's a third book. And that book is titled for us the book of life. So we know that God's got here in this scene where all humanity is called before God. He's got the books that are there. And then he's got the book of life. And it says, the dead were judged by what was written in the books. So the plural books here, the books that were written, these are the things that are going to determine the kind of judgment that people are going to have. The next line is, they're going to be judged according to what they have done. So apparently God is keeping track, and there's no apparently about it. He is keeping track of what everyone does. I'll call it a book of deeds, and it's all recording everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we do that is transgressing God's law or failing to keep God's rules. And then there's a book that should determine for us what the standard is. What should we do? What should we not do? Well, that's all spelled out for us in the Bible. And you say, well, some people don't have the Bible. Well, most people do have the Bible. It's the number one bestseller in the world. And even people that do not have it in a written form have been taught the truths of, of the Bible in all corners of the world. You'd be surprised as people travel around and study all these tucked away tribes all over the world. Uh, most people have a knowledge of the basic principles of the of the Bible. And even those who don't, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, God has embedded the truth of God's word, at least the, the high points of it, into the minds and consciences of everyone on the planet. And so their life is going to be compared to what their conscience or the scriptures say, and uh, they're going to be judged according to what they have done. Well, I don't want to be in that line. Well, you don't have to be. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, well, there's the exemption. And that's what we're here to do, to go from the book of death to the book of life, to the book of death, which means that you are not in the book of life, and you're going to have your judge, your, your deeds judged by what you have done based on what God's standard is. But if your name is not there, the Bible says you'll be thrown into, and here's what it's called, the lake of fire. Speaking of lakes and speaking of drowning, what we really need at that point is, uh, is a rescue. We need to be saved. We need to be delivered. And the difference between those that are delivered from the lake of fire and those who aren't are those whose names are written in the book of life. And the book of life are people that are saved. And that's people that are alive to God. They're in relationship with God. 
Now, most people don't care about that. They'll go through life not caring about it. And there's probably a good segment of this crowd that'll go through camp. They may even go through camp for six years at Compass Bible Church, and they will not really care. It will make no difference to them. They will go on, just like we've shown in pictures about being instinctual people, that just continue to do whatever we want to do. Just like Solomon, if we had enough money, we would jam our life full of all kinds of things that would try to dull our senses, make us feel good. So they're going to have to grapple with the big issues of life, that we need to fear God and keep his commandments. We need to do what God has asked, and the thing he asks us to do is found in our passage here tonight in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Think of that word, grace. Uh, this is really what we have to grapple with tonight, because there's a lot of people that want to feel like they're right with God, but they don't understand the concept of grace. Now, we've already defined it. We defined it yesterday, that grace is the undeserved kindness of God. And we saw in the previous passage that the mercy of God is not giving us what we deserve. If we deserve to drown on the lake because we're bad boaters, right, if we deserve to be punished eternally for the sins that we've committed and God doesn't do that, that would be a merciful thing. And it would be loving if he somehow solved the problem of me being, not being worthy to be with God when I die. If he sacrifices in some way to meet my need, that would be love. Mercy and love. Grace. It's all unmerited. And we realize when you think about the verse that we just quoted when the rich young ruler's picture was up there and he had to come to grips with the fact that we all have sinned, including himself. Think about this now. God could take the whole world and say, well, if you've all sinned, then you should just get what you deserve. That would be the just thing to do. It would be just like a judge who has all these people in front of them. They've done all these things from parking violations to murder. And he says, well, you're going to get what you deserve. You get this much pun punishment for what you've done here. You get that much punishment for the greater sins that you've done there. And that would be, that would be right of God. Everyone should, should encounter and, and live with the consequences of at least being cast out of the presence of God and the glory of his power. And God could do that, but he doesn't do that. And that's what this passage is about, that he is willing here to give us a gift. And that's a key word. Grace and salvation is God giving us something we don't deserve. And when we get something that we don't deserve, if we get something that is given to us, see, that's called a, a gift. We're all used to that. We're used to having gifts given to us. We've grown up in a society where people give you gifts for your birthday. They give you gifts at Christmas. They give you gifts at other things that happen, graduations and, and, and promotions or whatever. You get gifts from people. And when you get those gifts, you don't say, well, okay, that looks like a pretty good gift. I'm going to give you money for that gift. You don't, you don't exchange anything for that. You take it and you receive it. As a matter of fact, there's a passage of Scripture where someone tried to give money to get the gift of God. In this case, in Acts chapter 8, Peter responds and says something very harsh. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter. You're not going to be a part of this thing for your heart is not right before God. So I know this. If we don't understand salvation as a gift, it proves that our heart is not right before God. If we don't understand what it means to have grace be the motivating factor of God in giving us salvation, then we know that we're not right before God. Now, we need to understand this, and it's critical that we do. If this is about faith and not something that I'm going to earn, I've got to understand what that faith is. Now, this faith, this one word, is often used to describe our response to this gift that has been offered to us. But we've got to understand it. And it starts with something we've been harping on for the last two days, and that is that we understand the predicament that we're in. If we're drowning, if we're ever going to 
be saved. Like that man on the boat that was reaching out for that other boat coming to save him. We're going to have to say, this is not where I want to be. This is bad. The situation is bad. I'd like to get out of the situation I'm in. I don't want to be alienated from God. I don't want to be at odds with God. I don't want to be unforgiven. I don't want to be heading down a broad path that leads to destruction. I want out of this mess. I'm done with all of this. This life that is separated from God, I don't want to live in that state anymore. So you think about that. That is something that if you've been around the church long enough, you might understand those kinds of phrases relate to some biblical theme that we characterize with this word, repentance. Repentance means the thing that I'm in, the situation that I'm in, the things that surround what I do, like racking up debt that I'm going to have to then face God at judgment at the great white throne. I don't want that anymore. I want to be done with that. That desire, if God is giving you that desire, those, those are the impulses of repentance. God is giving us that heart that says, I, I don't want this. And if you don't want it, well, then the key is we've got to trust Christ who died on a cross to take this away. Just like if you were going to be rescued from that boating accident. There would be people there, I trust, that would come and they'd swoop down and say, trust me. Hey, I know this is weird. I'm going to put you in this, this, this rack, this gurney, this stretcher, and it's on a cable, but you're going to have to believe in me that I, I know what I'm doing. You're going to have to rely on me that I'm guiding this up to your deliverance. You're going to be saved. You're going to be delivered. And the Bible uses a word called faith to describe that, which we see in Romans, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that we're saved by grace through faith. That faith is a kind of faith that's only going to be exercised if someone is repentant, sometimes I call it a penitent faith, a faith that says, I know that I'm done with this. This is bad. The situation I'm in, being dead to God is wrong. It's bad. I don't want to be here anymore. Now I want to trust that Christ has supplied the answer and done everything that I need to get out of this mess. Jesus used these words. He taught in this, 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 this way as he came on the scene in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, John the Baptist had been arrested. Jesus comes into the northern part of Israel called Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, which means the good news of God. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. You can be right with me. You can be a subject rightly relating to the king. You can be a child of God. You can be a son to the father. Right? It's all here. It's ready. What do you have to do? Here are the commands. Repent and believe in the gospel. The same word, by the way, that translates into our English word believe here is the same Greek New Testament word that translates in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 as faith. It's the same word translated just in two different ways because you can see why a guy who's saying, I'm going to rescue you, believe in me, I can do this. Right? It's the same thing. Trust me, believe me, have faith in me. Those are all synonymous terms and it means that I'm willing to trust someone else. There's a good news in Christ's coming to provide for what we need, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul went around doing this as well. He tells the Ephesians, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I was testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. That that picture of turning and saying, I'm, I'm done with this life. I'm done with where I'm at. And I'm going to trust in what Christ has done to save me. And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
repentance and faith. You'll hear a lot about that around here. You're not going to hear phrases like, well, repeat a prayer after me or accept Jesus into your heart. I'm just saying we've got to stick with the biblical concepts, and the biblical concepts are faith. And what does that mean? I'm a repentant person trusting in you. It's a penitent faith. It's saying, I'm done being here in this situation, which the Bible calls being dead to God. I'm going to turn from that, and I'm going to trust in Christ. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. The gift of God. Now, there are two phrases that sandwich this word, the gift of God, and that's the phrase. It's not your own doing, and it's not a result of works. Not your own doing, and not a result of works. You don't earn it. Now, I use the example, and there is an example, obviously, there in Acts chapter 8 of someone saying, I want to pay for this. Can I give you silver coins for this? And we saw there that Peter goes, no, that's ridiculous. You think, well, no one really wants to pay their way into forgiveness and right relationship with God. But that wouldn't be accurate. As a matter of fact, the reason that we are not Roman Catholics, the reason we're not following after what the Pope says in Rome is because 500 years ago it got so off track that people said the Bible does not say you can buy this or earn it. And the thing that was going all throughout Europe at the time was you giving money so that you might get forgiveness for yourself and for other people. It's the Roman Catholic doctrine called uh, an indulgence. You get something called forgiveness and right relationship with God if you would pay literal money. Matter of fact, here's a picture of something you can buy. I've actually got one of these that was issued to someone else that had died and the family gave it to me and it's in my file cabinet and it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a full what they call plenary indulgence where all your sins are forgiven because someone has given money to get it. And they look like this and they have stamps on them from the Vatican. This has got Pope Pius XII on it who's there saying, I absolve you of your sins, you're right with God. You gave me the right amount of currency to get this. You say, well, that's not how it works today. That might have happened 500 years ago in Europe. But even today, right? Here's a picture of the, the cardinal here in Anaheim. The Catholic catechism of the Catholic Church. He would affirm this. He would teach this because this is what Rome teaches. And it still teaches in section 1471 that an indulgence that you get is partial or plenary. You can get part of your sins forgiven or all of your sins forgiven. That's what plenary means, all of it, according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment of sin. You can get extracted from the lake of fire depending on how much of an indulgence you got. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or you can even buy them and get them for people that have already died, which is exactly what was going on in Europe that made people like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and all the rest say we're done with this. The Bible does not teach us. You cannot buy your way into forgiveness. You can get books on how you should go about getting these indulgences. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of things you can do that go beyond paying for them. And you can, for instance, during Easter week, Holy Week they call it, is go from your confessions and your communion and praying for the Pope to going through all the things that you should do, like going and taking the Eucharist on Holy Thursday and, and being engaged in worship for half an hour and singing the right song and on Good Friday, making sure I go to the service that the Catholic Church has, taking the Eucharist on Saturday, i got to pray the rosary. And on Easter, I can attend a Mass, at night that is, and I can renew my baptismal promises and I can gain an indulgence, depending on where it is. 
There are certain things that you can do, even in the Catholic Church, as it states explicitly, is you can get your sins washed away even as a baby, even if you don't know what you're doing, by going through baptism in a Roman Catholic Church. You can get your sins taken away from you as Christ there enters your life in a mysterious way by eating the wafer, the Eucharist, which is a distortion and perversion of the Lord's Supper. If you eat this, it will extract your sin from you. You should go to a priest, and you should confess your sins, and you should tell him what you've done wrong. He can absolve you of those sins just by the nature of him being a representative of Christ in this world. And he can take the treasuries of Christ's forgiveness if you are honest and sincere about your confession to a representative of the church, and you can have forgiveness. And you can see if you look real close, this little leaguer has his rosary in his hands because that's what you do. You go and you confess your sins to a priest. He gives you things to do. It usually is going to involve the praying of the rosary or certain things in Rome. For instance, you can climb the steps on your knees up in the Vatican Holy Stairway. And if you do it at the right time, under the right direction, saying the right prayers a step at a time, you can earn your indulgence. You can earn your forgiveness. And it's not just perversions of the... Christian faith that teach this. As a matter of fact, all religions teach this. Islam, for instance, the five pillars of Islam. If you'd like to be right with God, I've shared the gospel with a lot of Muslims, they will tell you this is what you do. This is the teaching of Islam. This is the teaching that gets you right with God. And God is merciful, but he'll bring you that mercy and forgiveness if you engage in the confession. You say that, that there is no God, right, but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You give the confession of islamic the core of islamic theology you pray five times a day you get your prayer mat out you face toward mecca and you pray the prayers you do it at dawn you do it at noon you do it in the afternoon you do it at evening you do it at night you give 2.5 percent of your money and you give that away to the poor and to the needy and during ramadan the holy uh month of ramadan you you fast and you don't eat during the daylight hours and then you can in your life, if, you're, if it's possible for you to travel, you get yourself to Mecca in a lifetime. That's your pilgrimage to Mecca. And these are the five pillars of Islam. And you can then tap into the mercy of God. But you've got to do these things. The Jehovah Witnesses, for instance, will say that Jesus paid a ransom. And he, he's got this treasury of, of his wealth, that just like the Catholics would teach. And now you have, as the Jehovah Witness website says, jw.org, you now have the opportunity, because of Christ's death on the cross, to, uh, on a stake, they would say, to have your sins forgiven and be set free from sin and death. To get one's name in the book of life, because I've read that passage in Revelation 20. I'd like my name there. Well, it will depend upon what you do and what your works do. So it's not paying money in this case, but you better do certain things, much like the Muslims teach. Do this, 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 and this. If we tell you what to do and you do it, and many of them are just echoing the commands and moral commands of the Bible, then you'll get your name written in the book of life. Jehovah Witnesses should be, as the Watchtower and Tract Society says, working hard for the reward of eternal life. You do these things and you get rewarded and you get, you get to be saved. Hinduism, same thing. There's a path of devotion. It's very complicated. The path of action, the path of wisdom, the path of meditation. All of it is a life of renouncing things in my life. And as I do that, I find my pathway to salvation. Buddhism, even more complicated. Got to have the correct view, the correct intention, the correct speech, the correct action, correct livelihood, correct effort, correct mindfulness, and the correct concentration. This is called the Eightfold Path. 
right? There's the noble truths of Buddhism, and then there's the functional pathway of Buddhism. And you do these things, and you work your way towards salvation, nirvana. Or your friends over the, at, the, at the Mormon temple, they'll say that Christ atoned for Adam's sin, but he did not atone for our sin. We have to deal with that. Christ helped us. He is our Savior, but we've got to do our part. Jesus gives us general salvation. They'll say he speaks as a, as a savior in a general way, but individually we have to work that out in our life. People must progress toward increasing perfection. You've got to be baptized. That's necessary for salvation. And if you happen to miss it, someone has to be baptized for you after you die. Not to mention there's three heavens, the telestri uh, telestial, terrestrial, and celestial, and that will depend on how you work. And if you work hard enough, you can get into these different levels of heaven. You know this. I'm sure you have friends, right, that are engaged as Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Catholics. And you know, if you really talk to them about how do I get right with God, ask them. And it's all about, well, you have to do these things. That's not grace. That's not a gift. And this is embedded in what sinners love to do. They like to be people that pay their way. They like to, to get it done. As the old phrase says, we don't ask for it, we earn it. We go after it, we conquer it. That's the mindset of people when it comes to religion around the world. It's very different, though, than having to put myself in a gurney or on some kind of stretcher and have someone else do this for me. Listen carefully to this in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Quoting the book of Genesis, Paul writes to the Romans, is what does Scripture say? Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness, as though he was righteous, as though he, just by believing, became right before God without paying anything, without doing anything. Now, to the one who works, one who sees this as a job, saying, if I do these things, right, the, the noble truths or the, 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 the eight pathways of, of, of enlightenment and nirvana, or if I do the five pillars of Islam, if I work toward what the JWs or the Mormons or the Catholics tell me I should do, well, if one who works, right, and gets something from that, if that's forgiveness, well, then his wages are not counted as a gift, right? You've just excluded it from being a possibility of a gift, but it's what is due him. It's like God saying, well, you did all those things, and so of course I have to give you salvation because you did this, and I'm giving you that. Every religion is based on this. He goes on to say, but there's a different way to look at this. The one who does not work, who's not engaging in this as a contract. God, if I do these things, will then I please avoid the lake of fire? And would you please then put my name in the book of life? And would you please then take me to heaven when I die? The one who doesn't see it that way, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, who says, I just sank my boat, and I'm here dying in this lake of sin, and I need to be rescued. I trust you. I believe you. I'm going to put my faith in you that you will save me from this. The one who sees that as his action of just trusting in what God has done, well, then his faith is counted as righteousness. It's as though he is righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He counts someone as completely right before him, and yet he hasn't done anything. And he writes this in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. They're just wiped out. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In a cab, I think the last time I was talking to a Muslim, just weeks back, I was with Pastor Kellen, and we were going to the hotel from the airport, and we start engaging with the Muslim. And again, I say to him, how, sir, do you get your sins forgiven? Well, God is merciful, but i got to work. I've got to work hard, and I hope by the end I'll get there. 
And I say to him, you know, it's a different thing that I'm presenting to you is that there is a God. There is one God. He has a son named Jesus Christ. And the spirit that might be convicting you in this conversation to lead you to see that salvation is a gift. It's not something you can earn. And here's the good news. How blessed you could be. How happy you could be. How relieved you could be tonight if you would just say, I have to trust in what Christ has done. But he doesn't want to do that. Like so many people I know, you don't have to be a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. I mean, you can be a, a, just a church-going kid. You can just be a, a, a evangelical youth group-going person. You think, I, that's still how I'm thinking about it. It's not a gift. It's something I'm trying to earn. I hope I do good enough to get it. I want you to think about the difference here. The difference is at the end of it all, when you actually say, I am alive and I'm not dead, I can't boast, right? Think about the difference between someone who gets through life and they say, I've done this right now. God, you've, you've got to give me salvation. Right? There's someone who says and thinks about his relationship with God that way. And then there's a person that says, I know I can't do it. I know I'm, sin- I'm a sinner. I know I need to trust in what Christ has done. Completely different. Picture those two perspectives, right? One of them at the end of life is going to say, I did it. I did it. I did, I did enough good things. And the other one's going to say, just thank you. I mean, one's going to see this as, as an act of boasting, ultimately, right? I had something to do with this. I'm glad I chose to do the right things. I'm glad I, forsake, I forsook enough of the sin that other people are engaging in. I'm glad I walked this right path. And then there are those who just say, well, I, I worship you for accomplishing this for me. Revelation chapter 5, that scene in heaven that we started to read this week about the lamb that was slain. Here's how John describes it. I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, the myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Who gets all that? Well, God does. He gets all the, all the honor, all the credit, all the blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, these strange angelic beings, said, Amen. And the elders fell down and and worshipped. That's a completely different mindset than most people have about Christianity. The whole point of this week is to figure out whether you're dead or alive. And, and, And it's a question, I think, in many people's minds. And it's more than just understanding more Bible It's about whether or not in your heart God has created a desire for you to say, I know I need salvation. And then he gives you the capacity to say, I'm going to repent and say, I want out of this. I don't want to be involved in these sins. I don't want to engage in this kind of life of separation. I want to trust you. And I want you to be the the sole and complete reason that I'm going to be at that last day saying, I'm able and accepted and worthy to be in your presence simply because of what Christ has done. It starts with you knowing that you're dead, and if there's not an absolute assurance that you need salvation, I mean, you'll you'll never get it. Matter of fact, the bad news, the reason we spent so much time on the bad news is because you can't have the good news of saying, I can be saved out here if you haven't called for help, if you haven't seen the dire situation that you're in. I mean, the whole point is, right, we want you to be alive. We'd like you to be right with the living God. I've said some things here that are very simple. At least they're simple to be laid out as repentance and faith, and this is a gift, and it's not something you can earn. 
It's illustrated so well by the thief on the cross who had done nothing to earn salvation. He lived a life that was awful. And yet he turned to Christ on the cross. He put his trust in Christ. And we know that even by the way he was defending Christ from the criminal that was being crucified on the other side of Christ. And Jesus turned to him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Right? There's absolutely no purgatory. There's no money to pay. There's nothing, absolutely nothing he could do to be worthy. Matter of fact, people would stand around, some of the Pharisees that had forsaken all kinds of sin in their life. They had tried to walk the right path their whole life. They tried to keep the commandments like the rich young ruler. And they're saying, what do you mean that guy just edged into heaven before us? And that's exactly what Jesus taught when he was walking around Galilee and Judea. He was saying, listen, it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors that are entering the kingdom before you, scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. Why? Because Jesus told the story about people going up to the temple to pray and the Pharisees were standing there saying, you know what, I'm glad I'm not a sinner like those people. And it was the tax collector who beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. He knew he needed salvation. And Jesus said, that man went home justified because he believed that God would settle the score for him, would fix this, would give him the righteousness he needed in Christ. I'd like to take that question mark away. That's what this whole camp is about. So put your notes down and bow your head, and I just want you to think for a second as I lead us in prayer. This was a short sermon because we need to bear down on thinking carefully through what it is that you have understood about this, how you see your sin, and how you see the provision in Christ. So let me pray for you. And if some of you are being drawn with clarity to putting your trust in Christ, we want to take the question mark away and say, tonight's the night you put your trust fully in Christ, not in what you can do, but in Christ has, but in what Christ has done. You pray with me, and I'll pray for you. God, there are some people here tonight heard the message of the gospel many times, I suppose. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about the resurrection. They've heard about the fact that he went around doing good things and he healed the sick and raised the dead, but they never have truly said to you, they are sinners in need of salvation. They've actually looked at other people in their neighborhoods, at school, and they've thought, I'm, I'm better than them. I'm glad I'm not like them. They're so sinful. They're so wicked. I'm glad I'm not a sinner like they are. But they don't understand that salvation is a free gift. And I pray that right now your spirit might help them. Give them that awareness. Give them, as Jesus, you often said, give them eyes to see this truth. Give them ears to hear this truth. Give them a mind to understand this truth. And then even right now as I'm praying, God, I pray you would draw them to a place of full, repentant faith. That they would say, I'm done with this life. I'm done of being separated from you. I'm done being in that situation of knowing that if I were to die today, I would be cast into hell. And I want to trust right now in the finished work of Christ that he died for me to take the penalty of sin upon himself. And he lived for me to fulfill all righteousness, to do everything the way it ought to be done and let them put their full confidence in you. Not like they're climbing a mountain to earn their way into heaven, but they're resting in the finished work like a stretcher, like a gurney, getting hauled up out of this mess called sin and they're trusting you so god may that happen even now in some hearts there's no hands to raise there's no aisles to walk there's no cards to fill out it's just you dealing with them and them having that experience of being pulled across the line by your faith give them that faith give them that penitent faith 
And may some people that came to this camp dead, may they right now, even in this moment, come alive. As you tear that veil, as you take the barrier and remove it, and you bring them into a relationship with yourself, one that will be imperfect. It'll be hard. As we'll talk about tomorrow night, there's lots of challenges to it, but you have a path set out for us that we can live out by saying thank you and worshiping you and being grateful by giving our lives to you in every day, not to earn anything, but just to say thanks. So God, even now, I pray that you would do that in the hearts of some as we sing in Jesus' name.